Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 14. Part C of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova. The moon was shining, and I saw a church with a house adjoining a long barn open on both sides, a plain of about 150 yards confined by hills, and nothing more. I found some straw in the barn, and laying down myself, I slept until daybreak in spite of the cold. It was the first of December, and although the climate is very mild in Corfu, I felt benumbed when I awoke, as I had no cloak over my thin uniform. The bells began to toll, and I proceeded towards the church. The long-bearded papa, surprised at my sudden apparition, inquires whether I am Romeo, a Greek. I tell him that I am Fragico, Italian, but he turns his back upon me and goes into the house, the door of which he shuts without condescending to listen to me. I then turned towards the sea and saw a boat leaving a tartan lying at anchor within one hundred yards of the island. The boat had four oars and landed her passengers. I came up to them and met a good-looking Greek, a woman and a young boy, ten or twelve years old. Addressing myself to the Greek, I asked him whether he has had a pleasant passage, and where he comes from. He answers in Italian that he had sailed from Cephalonia with his wife and his son, and that he is bound for Venice. He had landed to hear Mass at the church of Our Lady of Casopo, in order to ascertain whether his father-in-law was still alive, and whether he would pay the amount he had promised him for the dowry of his wife. But how can you find it out? The Papa del Dimopolo will tell me. He will communicate faithfully with the oracle of the Holy Virgin. I say nothing and follow him into the church. He speaks to the priest and gives him some money. The Papa says the Mass and enters the Sanctum Sanctorum, comes out again in a quarter of an hour, ascends the step of the altar and turns towards his audience and, after meditating for a minute and stroking his long beard, he delivers his oracle in a dozen words. The Greek of Cephalonia, who certainly cannot boast of being as wise as Ulysses, appears very well pleased, and gives more money to the impostor. We leave the church, and I ask him whether he feels satisfied with the oracle. Oh, quite satisfied. I know now that my father-in-law is alive, and that he will pay me the dowry, if I consent to leave my child with him. I am aware that it is his fancy, 
and I will give him the boy. Does the papa know you? No, he is not even acquainted with my name. Have you taken any fine goods on board your tartan? Yes, come and breakfast with me. You can see all that I have. Very willingly. Delighted at hearing that oracles were not yet defunct, and satisfied that they will endure as long as there are in this world simple-minded men and deceitful, cunning priests, I followed the good man, who took me to his tartan and treated me to an excellent breakfast. His cargo consisted of cotton, linen, currants, oil, and excellent wines. He also had a stock of nightcaps, stockings, cloaks in the eastern fashion, umbrellas, and sea biscuits, of which I was very fond. In those days I had thirty teeth, and it would have been very difficult to find a finer set. Alas, I have but two left now. The other twenty-eight are gone, with the other tools quite as precious. But dum vita super est, bene est. I bought a small stock of everything he had, except cotton, for which I had no use, and without discussing his price I paid him the thirty-five or forty sequins he demanded, and seeing my generosity he made me a present of six beautiful botargos. I happened during our conversation to praise the wine of Zante, which he called Genorides, and told me that if I would accompany him to Venice he would give me a bottle of that wine every day, including the quarantine. Always superstitious, I was on the point of accepting, and that for the most foolish reason, namely that there would be no premeditation in that strange resolution, and that it might be the impulse of fate. Such was my nature in those days. Alas, it is very different now. They say that it is because wisdom comes with old age, but I cannot reconcile myself to cherish the effect of a most unpleasant cause. Just as I was going to accept his offer, he proposes to sell me a very fine gun for ten sequins, saying that in Corfu anybody would be glad of it for twelve. The word Corfu upsets all my ideas on the spot. I fancy I hear the voice of my genius telling me to go back to that city. I purchased the gun for ten sequins, and my honest Cephalonian, admiring my fair dealing, gives me, over and above our bargain, a beautiful Turkish pouch, well filled with powder and shot. Carrying my gun, with a good warm cloak over my uniform, and with a large bag containing all my purchases, I take leave of the worthy Greek, and am landed on the shore, determined on obtaining a lodging from the cheating papa, by fair means or foul. The good wine of my friend the Cephalonian had excited me just enough to make me carry my determination into immediate execution. I had in my pockets four or five hundred copper gazette, which were very heavy, but which I had procured from the Greek, foreseeing that I might want them during my stay on the island. I store my bag away in the barn, and I proceed, gun in hand, towards the house of the priest. The church was closed. I must give my readers some idea of the state I was in at that moment. I was quite hopeless. The three or four hundred sequins I had with me did not prevent me from thinking that I was not in very great security on the island. I could not remain long. I would soon be found out, and being guilty of desertion, I would be treated accordingly. I did not know what to do, and that is always an unpleasant predicament. It would be absurd for me to return to Corfu on my own accord. My flight would be then be useless. I should be thought a fool, for my return would be a proof of cowardice or stupidity. Yet I did not feel the courage to desert altogether. The chief reason of my decision was not that I had a thousand sequins in the hands of the faro banker, or my well-stocked wardrobe, or the fear of not getting a living somewhere else. 
but the unpleasant recollection that I should leave behind me a woman whom I loved to adoration, and for whom I had not yet obtained any favor, not even of kissing her hand. In such distress of mind I could not do anything else but abandon myself to chance. Whatever the reason might be, and the most essential thing for the present was to secure a lodging and my daily food. I knock at the door of the priest's dwelling. He looks out of a window and shuts it without listening to me. I knock again, I swear. I call out loudly, all in vain. Giving way to my rage, I took aim at the poor sheep grazing with several others at a short distance and kill it. The herdsman begins to scream. The papa shows himself at the window, calling out, Thieves! Murder! and orders the alarm bell to be rung. Three bells are immediately set in motion. I foresee a general gathering. What is going to happen? I do not know, but what happen what will, I load my gun and wait a coming events. In less than eight or ten minutes I see a crowd of peasants coming down the hills, armed with guns, pitchforks, or cudgels. I withdraw inside the barn, but without the slightest fear, for I cannot suppose that, seeing me alone, these men will murder me without listening to me. The first ten or twelve peasants come forward, gun in hand and ready to fire. I stop them by throwing down my gazette, which they lose no time in picking up from the ground, and I keep on throwing money down as the men came forward, until I had no more left. The clowns were looking at each other in great astonishment, not knowing what to make out of a well-dressed young man, looking very peaceful and throwing his money to them with such generosity. I could not speak to them until the deafening noise of the bells should cease. I quietly sit down on my large bag and keep still, but as soon as I can be heard I begin to address the men. The priest, however, assisted by his beetle and his herdsmen, interrupts me, and all the more easily that I was speaking Italian. My three enemies, who talked all at once, were trying to excite the crowd against me. One of the peasants, an elderly and reasonable-looking man, comes up to me and asks an Italian why I have killed the sheep. To eat it, my good fellow, but not before I have paid for it but His Holiness the Papa might choose to charge one sequin for it. Here is one sequin. The priest takes the money and goes away. The war is over. The peasant tells me that he had served on the campaign of 1716, and that he was at the defense of Corfu. I compliment him and ask him to find me a lodging, and a man able to prepare my meals. He answers that he will procure me a whole house, that he will be the cook himself. But I must go up the hill. No matter. He calls two stout fellows, one takes my bag, the other shoulders my sheep, and forward. As we are walking along, I tell him, My good man, I would like to have in my service twenty-four fellows. Like these, under military discipline, I would give each man twenty gazette a day, and I would have forty as my lieutenant. I will, says the old soldier, raise for you this very day a bodyguard of which you will be proud. We reach a very convenient house, containing on the ground floor three rooms and a stable, which I immediately turned into a guard-room. My lieutenant went to get what I wanted, and particularly a needlewoman to make me some shirts. In the course of the day I had furniture, bedding, kitchen utensils, a good dinner, twenty-four well-equipped soldiers, a superannuated seamstress, and several young girls to make my shirts. After supper I found my position highly pleasant, being surrounded with some thirty persons, who looked upon me as their sovereign, although they could not make out what had brought me to their island. The only thing which struck me as disagreeable was that the young girls could not speak Italian, 
and I did not know Greek enough to enable me to make love to them.